We apologise for the poor sound quality during the following sermon by Dr Martin Lloyd-Jones. This was due to a deterioration of the original recording, and although it's been digitally restored to improve audibility, we trust that it will not spoil your enjoyment of this sermon by Dr Martin Lloyd-Jones. The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St John in chapter 5, verses 31 to 35. Verses 31 to 35 in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from men, but these things I say that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. We come back once more to a consideration of these important verses, and we do so for the reason that our blessed Lord himself gives in that 34th verse, which I have just read to you, he says, I receive not testimony from men, by which he means I really don't need it. I don't stand in need of it. But, he says, I am nevertheless quoting to you the testimony of John the Baptist, that ye might be saved. That was his whole reason, indeed, for continuing this conversation, as we have seen on several Sunday evenings, with these Jews. These Jews who were criticizing him and completely misunderstanding him. Our Lord, you remember, had healed a man there at the pool of Bethesda, who had been a cripple for 38 years. But because he'd done it on a Sunday, these Jews had taken umbrage, they said that he was disobeying God's commandment and God's will and God's law. And thus they were filled with a spirit of hatred and of antagonism towards him. But he speaks to them, he reasons with them. But they say by saying that you're making yourself equal with God. Far from disputing or denying that our Lord makes it perfectly plain to them that that is precisely what he does claim, that he is one with the Father. One in understanding, one in knowledge, one in purpose, one in object. That as the Father has life in himself, so he has given to the Son to have life in himself. And that he indeed, he has committed the judgment of the world to him. He makes this most exalted claim. And yet, you see, they still remain obdurate. They still resist the truth. And it wouldn't have been a bit surprising from our standpoint if our Lord at this stage had just turned his back upon them and had finished with them. But he doesn't. He's put it plainly and clearly to them. Still they don't see it. And then he says, well now, let me try to understand you. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. By which he means, I, I, I can see that from your standpoint that you're not going to believe it merely on my word. You say in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall everything be established. Very well, he says. I'm not merely saying these things myself. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Now that's a reference to God himself. But how has God borne witness to the Lord Jesus Christ? How has God testified that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God? Well, here's the first. Our Lord says, you yourself, you yourself sent a deputation to John the Baptist. And he bare witness unto the truth. You'll find the full report of that in the first chapter of this gospel according to St. John, verses 19 to 39 roughly. There it is all in detail, how they sent their deputation to John, saying, Art thou the Christ? And if you're not the Christ, are you then Elijah? If you're not Elijah, are you the prophet that should come? Who are you? 
Well, now then, our Lord tells them here that he is directing their attention to the answers which John the Baptist gave to their very question. And what was it John said? We've already been considering it. Here was the first thing. John made it perfectly plain and clear that he himself was not the Christ. He says, I am not worthy to undo the latchet of his shoes. I am merely the forerunner, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. No, no, he says. It's the one who is coming after me, who is preferred before me, for he was before me. He says, I am but the friend of the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. Who is he? Well, he's the one, he says, who's come from heaven. He is the one who is above all. Indeed, he says explicitly that he is the Son of God. The one, he says, who sent me to baptize, referring to God, told me that the Messiah was the one on whom I should see the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. And I testify, said John, that as I baptized Jesus of Nazareth in the Jordan, as we had finished, I saw the Holy Spirit coming upon him in the form of a dove and abiding upon him. And therefore, I bear record that he is the Son of God. Very well, says our Lord to these Jews. Now, take your own evidence. You yourself sent your deputation to John to ask the question, Who art thou? That was John's reply. Why don't you believe him? He says, if you'd only believed John, you'd have believed something that could save you. And that is the first thing that is essential to salvation. That we believe and know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. Salvation. Deliverance from the guilt of sin. Deliverance from the power of sin. Deliverance from the pollution of sin. Deliverance from hell. Deliverance for heaven. That's what it means to be saved. I'm saying these things as our Lord that you may be saved. And no man can be saved unless he believes and knows that the Son of God has come down into this world in order to save us. John testified to this, that he is the Son of God. Very well. The second thing he testifies was, uh, that he testified was the way in which he does save us. And we looked at that last Sunday night. John stood one day with his disciples round him, and Jesus of Nazareth approached. And John stood back and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Behold, it's an exclamation of amazement and of astonishment. It's not merely an exhortation to them to look at him. He says, Behold the phenomenon. Here is the Lamb of God that taketh away the end of the world. Oh, we are reminded of it here by the bread and the wine. How does Jesus Christ save us? How does he save us from the guilt of our sin? I'll tell you. He saves us by taking our sins upon himself. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. God the Father has taken our sins and has put them on the head of his own son, his own lamb, and has smitten him, has struck him. He was wounded for our transgression. He bore the iniquities of many. His body was broken, his blood was shed. And so, he has taken away our sins. He takes away the guilt by dying for us on the cross on Calvary's hill. No man can be saved without believing that. It isn't enough to believe he's the Son of God and that he came into this world. We must believe, as Paul says, in Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is only in his crucifixion that he takes away our sins. He died 
for our transgression. He was delivered up for our offenses. It is by the blood of Christ that our sins are blotted out. John the Baptist said so. So our Lord turns to these people and says, why don't you believe him? Why don't you believe the reply he gave to your own deputation? If you do, it will save you. He delivers us from the guilt of our sin in that way. But you see, that isn't all. John didn't finish at that point. John went on. He's got something else which, which he wants to say and which he did say to this deputation. What is this further something? Well, it's perfectly plain and clear in every one of the four Gospels. I read at the beginning the third chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, a portion of it, because it's there stated particularly clearly. But it's there also in the Gospel according to Matthew, which there in the first, Matthew 3, Mark 1, there in the third of Luke, and then again in the first chapter of this Gospel according to St. John. What is this? Well, here it is. Let me quote it to you again from Luke 3.16. I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh. The latchet of whose shoes I am unworthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. That's the thing to which I'm referring. Now, it's obvious that this is something which is of supreme importance. Every one of the Gospels contains it and mentions it. And that is in and of itself an indication that it is one of those things that we cannot afford to neglect or to miss. It is indeed a vital part of John the Baptist's testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says he is not only the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, he is the coming one who is going to baptize with the Holy Ghost and fire. Now this testimony of John at this point is of extreme importance in two main respects, and I must refer to them. It is of supreme importance in the first instance as it attests and proves the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Here is, as it were, the crowning proof of all that Jesus of Nazareth is not only the Son of God, but the long-anticipated and expected Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior, to whose coming the children of Israel have been looking forward throughout the centuries. Here is the final proof of it in what he did on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem. Now let me put it to you like this. You go back to your Old Testament and there you will find this promise stated in different places and in different ways that God was going to send a deliverer into the world. He was going to send a great personage who would deliver his people. And this was the special promise that he would pour out his spirit upon them. It's called the promise of the Father. Now you remember how the Apostle Peter preaching at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, he made a great thing of this in that sermon of his which is recorded in the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. You remember, don't you, the incident? There these people were, they'd come up from different parts of the world to the great feast of Pentecost at Jerusalem. And suddenly they began to hear uh, most amazing news that there was a handful of people, very ordinary men from Galilee, who suddenly were all beginning to speak in other languages. And this was a phenomenon, and everybody gathered together, all were amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how oh, here we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and uh, the dwellers of Mesopotamia, and so on and so forth. And they all came together. And they were amazed, and they said, what meaneth this? Some said, these men are full of new wine, they're drunk. Then Peter stood up in the midst of them and began to preach. And this is what he said. Having explained that they were not drunken, as they supposed, being that it was but the third hour of the day, meaning by that nine o'clock in the morning, he said this. 
is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, when he said, It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, says Peter, hear these words. And then he begins to tell them about Jesus of Nazareth. A man of, approved of God among them by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him. He says, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be hidden of it. Then he says, listen to this. Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he, David, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received the promise of the Father, the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which you now see and hear. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, what does all that mean? Well, this is the argument. Here, you see, is the ancient promise. That the Messiah, the one who was going to save, would be the one to whom would be given in this abundance this gift of the Holy Spirit to pour forth upon people. And therefore you see Peter's argument. But before I work that out with you, let me remind you of this. Not only did Joel say that, not only do you find the same prophecy in different languages, in the prophecy of Ezekiel and of, his, of Isaiah. Listen to John the Baptist. Here's the last of the great succession of prophets, and this is what he says. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. This one who's coming after me, this Jesus. I'm not the Christ, he is. Very well, John had prophesied it. Indeed, our Lord himself had prophesied it and had claimed it. Go home and read at your leisure. Chapters 14, 15, and 16 of this gospel according to St. John. He says, look here, I'm not going to leave you often. Let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to send you another comforter. He will come, and he will teach you, and he will lead you into all truth. That's his message. Go home and read it. When he has come, he says, he shall convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Ghost that I'm going to send. And then, you remember, that after his crucifixion and burial and his rising again, we are told in the first chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, that he suddenly appeared amongst his disciples, and he said this to them, Stay where you are in Jerusalem. Don't go away yet. Because, he said, I'm going to fulfill that promise which I made to you. And then he goes back and he reminds them of what John the Baptist had spoken to them. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which said he, ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And then he explains it more fully in verse 8, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now then, 
This is, you see, what Peter therefore began to say on this day of Pentecost. He said, men and women, why don't you face the facts? You remember that Jesus from Nazareth who used to be here in this city preaching and teaching and working miracles? Who claimed to be the Son of God and you wouldn't believe him? And you all shouted out together, away with him, crucify him. Said, release unto us Barabbas. I'm telling you, said Peter, that this which has happened, this ability to speak in these unknown languages, which is amazing you, and which some of you seem to attribute to drunkenness, this is nothing but the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And when he said that the Messiah would have this gift and would shed it abroad, he's done it. That's his argument. This, he said, is the verification of the fulfillment of that which was prophesied by John the Baptist. Can't you see it, said Peter? Can't you see that the shedding forth of this is a proof that the Jesus whom you delivered up and condemned in your ignorance and whom your rulers incited you to do so, can't you see that he is the Christ? And a number of them were pricked in their hearts and cried out, saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the Holy Ghost. Well, you see, this is the argument. John the Baptist fixes on this because he knew it was given to him to understand that this was the final and the clinching proof that this Jesus is the Christ and the Deliverer, the Savior, he who sends out, out and forth the Holy Spirit. He is the Christ. And he has done so. Now, my friends, I must therefore ask you a simple question at this point. You and I are looking back upon these facts. The day of Pentecost is a fact of history. Isn't it perfectly clear that there would never have been a Christian church were it not for the day of Pentecost? Do you remember the crestfallen, disappointed, unhappy disciples? What suddenly turns them into these blazing evangelists? It was the shedding forth of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost as I'm hoping to show you. And that is the final proof that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. Well, therefore, once more, this is the fact with which we are faced this evening. But here we have this evidence and this testimony of history. That the Son of God has come down from heaven to us, has been in this world. These things I say unto you, says our Lord, that you might be saved. Here's further evidence. Have you considered it? Have you given its due weight to the fact of that which happened on the day of Pentecost? Have you seen its meaning, its import, its argument? That the Christ has come? That this is nothing but a fact of history. There it is, then I say again, attesting and proving the claim of Jesus Christ to be the only begotten Son of God. But that isn't the only thing that's important about it. There's something else. And this second thing is that it is of vital importance. With regard to the whole question of the nature of salvation, how so many people stumble at this. There are so many people who think that they're Christians, whereas in reality they're not, because they don't know what Christianity is. They've never realized it. They've never known the full content of this word, salvation. What is salvation? Well, I've already emphasized that it means that we are delivered from the guilt of our sins. We've always got to start with that, and that is why the first statement is that he is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. But you know, salvation doesn't stop at that. It goes on. 
need, as I said, to be delivered also from the power of sin and from the pollution of sin. And it's here we begin to have an insight into that. For Jesus Christ is not only the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Ghost. What does it mean? Well, there is nothing that is more important for our consideration than just this. Uh, John puts it very perfectly for us. You remember by comparing and contrasting his baptism with the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the tragedy is that so many think of Christianity in terms of John the Baptist's baptism. But that isn't it, as John said. Now look here at this dramatic situation there by the side of Jordan. Here were all these people who'd come out and had listened to John. They'd never seen a man like this before. He was the prophet. And there hadn't been a prophet from God for 400 years. They'd heard of this strange man who lived there in the wilderness eating nothing but locusts and wild honey, not dressed like people who live, live in king's palaces, as our Lord put it, but with nothing on, on but a camel hair shirt and a leathern girdle. And they'd gone out in great excitement and curiosity. It was the talking point, to use the modern jargon, in Jerusalem. And they'd gone crowding out to see this strange phenomenon there in the wilderness. And John had spoken to them, and he'd addressed them, and they'd looked into his blazing eyes, as he had poured forth this mighty rhetoric of him and had presented them with the truth. And then the account goes on to tell us this. That as all men amused in their hearts concerning John and said unto themselves whether he be the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, don't you see it? Here is the preacher, John the Baptist, and there is the congregation he's just been addressing. He's finished his sermon, and he's there doing something, and they're all talking to one another, and they said, what is this man? Who is he? We've never seen or heard anything like this before. This must be the Christ. This must be the man we've been expecting. This must be the prophet. All men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. John suddenly flashes upon them and says, I am not the Christ. I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am unworthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with power. This isn't Christianity, he says. It's coming. Mine isn't Christianity. I'm only the preparation. Very well. Let's look at the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Christ. Because I say the tragedy is that so many think that John's baptism is Christianity. And because they've conformed to that, they think they've got everything. And they haven't begun to understand Christianity. No, no. This is salvation. Not what John had. What had John got to give? Well, listen to him. John's is a baptism with water. What did that lead to? What indeed was it even meant to do? John makes it quite plain and clear to them. That is merely a call to repentance. That is simply a call to men and women to examine themselves and to confess their sins. John's baptism is just a call to men to live a right and an upright and an honest life. It's all there for us in that third chapter of Luke's Gospel, in very simple manner, in reply to the three deputations that you remember came to John. Here is the first. The first people came and asked him, what shall we do then? And this is what John replied. He answereth and saith unto them, he that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none, and he that hath meat, let him do likewise. 
In other words, said John to these people, if you've got two coats and you know a man or a woman who hasn't got a coat at all, just give one of your two coats to the other, that's all. Or if you've got superabundance of meat and of food in your larder and you know somebody who's starving, give him of your excess. That's all he asked for. You needn't be a Christian to do that, need you? There are many people who deny Christ completely in the world who do that. And yet there are many who think that that is Christianity. It isn't, says John. That's my level. That's morality. That's a religion. That isn't Christianity. Well, then there came a second deputation, you remember. The publican. The tax gatherer. And they said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. In other words, he said, look here, be honest, don't cheat. If you know that a given man is to pay a certain amount of tax, charge him that. Don't add on something and put the excess into your own pocket. That's all. Is that Christianity? Well, I hope that every moral, decent person comes up to that standard. That's not Christianity. You don't need to be a Christian in order to do that. That's morality. And yet, you see, people think it's wonderful. If they do that, they're Christians. They never do anybody any harm. They do good. They're always straight and upright in their income tax and so on, and therefore they're Christians. That makes them Christians. I know that's John's baptism. Then came the soldiers likewise, and demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence, do violence to no man. Neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. John does not tell them for a moment that they are not to act as soldiers and in a war, if necessary, to shoot, to kill men, in the way that they then did. But he says, Don't do violence to any man. He says, neither accuse any falsely. It's a part of your duty to accuse people truly, but not falsely. And honor your bond, keep your bargain. If you've made a contract with a man to do a given piece of work for a given wage, be content with your wages. Try and get better if you like, but if you've made a bond and a contract, honor it and keep it. Don't go back on your word. That's it. Is that Christianity? I say, no, that's morality. That is John the Baptist. That's religion. And yet, you see, there are thousands of people still probably in this country who think that they're Christians for these reasons. They do a bit of good. They give away the extra coat that they can do without. And they're honest and scrupulous and fair in their business dealings. And they honor their bond and they're never violent. And they never accuse anybody falsely. And therefore, they say, we are Christians. We are good living people. Never done anybody any harm. Always try to do good. Therefore, we are Christians. No, no, says John. I, the Christ, out upon the suggestion. I indeed baptize you with water. But that's not the thing. Hey. No, no, says John, this isn't it. This is only preparation for it. You've got to repent. You've got to confess your sins. You've got to realize the truth about yourself. You've got to try and keep God's law. You've got to try and honor his commandments. That's all I'm asking you. I can't deliver you, says John. But he will deliver you. I can simply tell you what's wrong. He alone can put it right. I am not the deliverer. I am not the Christ. I am unworthy to undo the latchet of his shoe. So that we see that John the Baptist teaches us very plainly and clearly that merely to be moral and merely to be religious doesn't save us. It isn't Christianity. The Jews thought it saved them. But Christ says, these things I say unto you, that you might be saved. Listen to what John said to you. He said that this isn't Christianity, that this isn't salvation, that God will never be satisfied with that alone. Have you confused, I wonder, my friend, between the baptism of John and the baptism of Christ? Had you thought that the Christian is just a good, moral, decent, clean-living man, and no more, if you did, you don't know anything about Christianity. That's baptism with water, that's John, that's preliminary, that simply points to the greatness and the glory of the true salvation that Christ alone can give. What is it? Well, let's look at it. 
Here is Christ's baptism, this baptism with the Holy Ghost and with fire. What is it? Well, it's a large subject. I can only touch upon it. There's been a great deal of confusion about this. And many people are frightened of it because certain misguided people have put into the center what belongs to the periphery and have regarded the incidentals which may or may not be present as the most important thing of all. But what does it mean then, says someone? Well, let me tell you very briefly. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. The fire is in the Holy Ghost. What's it mean? It means this. This is Christ's salvation. He's already died for the penalty and the guilt of sin. But oh, what about these other aspects? Here it is. He baptizes with the Holy Ghost and fire. What does this mean? Well, you see the contrast, don't you? It's no longer water. It's the difference between water and fire. That's the difference between morality and Christianity. How cold is morality? How correct? And yet, not only that, but external, superficial. But fire, the heat, the warmth, the power, and more than that, it's internal. It works within. And this is the whole doctrine of the Holy Spirit. What the Lord Jesus Christ does is not merely to clean us on the surface as water does. He works within. And he works within with the fire of the Holy Ghost. And fire purifies. There is nothing that purifies as fire does. Do you see that mass of amalgam? There's gold in it, but there are other things in it. And what you do with it, you put it into the crucible. And outside the crucible is the mighty flame of fire. And what does it do? It burns and consumes the dross. And nothing is left but the pure gold. That's how you purify metals, by fire. And the Holy Ghost is fire. And he works within. And he purifies. And he cleanses the heart. It isn't merely, I say, an external action. It is an internal action. He not merely gets rid of this defilement of sin. He deals with the source of sin in the heart itself. It's the answer to the cry and the prayer of David in Psalm 51. Create within me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And Christ sends the spirit and he burns as a fire within, purifying and cleansing. The Apostle Paul puts it in his way in writing to the Philippians in the second chapter when he says this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What's he mean? It's a reference to the work of the Holy Ghost. In sanctifying us and in cleansing us, he's within us. And he directs our minds and our thoughts and our imaginations. You suddenly feel you must read the word of God and it gives you a message. What made you feel that? It was the Holy Ghost. It's a part of his burning. He leads you to the truth which burns and sanctifies. You suddenly feel you must pray. You have a longing for God. What is it? It's the Holy Ghost leading you to sanctification, burning away the dross. It is he that enlightens our minds and our understanding to the world and its way. And without the enlightening, we'll never see it. We think the world is wonderful by nature. But the Holy Ghost enlightens us. And we may or may to hate sin. Oh, let me give it in one great quotation again. From the Apostle Paul in his first epistle to the Corinthians. In chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, sodomites, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus 
and by the Spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit had been in them and had burned and had burned away the vileness and the foulness and the evil and their faith adorning the church of God. No longer water, but fire. Oh yes, and another thing. The Holy Ghost brings to us the new covenant that God had promised through Jeremiah that he would make with the people. Do you remember what it was? Let me remind you. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. You see the difference? The old covenant John was a tape, was a commandment written on a, on a table, on a slate, on a stone. It was outside. There it is. There's the old tables of covenant. A law outside me. Oh, says God through Jeremiah, when he comes and sheds forth the Holy Spirit, it'll be my new covenant. I'm going to write the laws in their minds, imprint them in their hearts. So that a man no longer will be looking at something outside himself. He'll have my law inside him. It'll be working as a power within him. Delivering him. Setting him free. Making known the truth to him. Christ said it when he said. If ye continue in my words. Then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. If the Son will make you free. Ye shall be free indeed. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. But if the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. This is what the Holy Ghost does. He comes within us as a purifying flame. And he leads us to this delight in holiness and in truth and in God and in sanctification. And so he delivers us from the power of sin. And from its pollution, you needn't be a Christian to be moral, but you must be a Christian to be holy. Morality simply doesn't do things. That isn't Christianity. Christianity is a love of purity and holiness and truth and sanctity because it's God. And it's within him as a principle and as a power and as a fire, burning away dross. Falling into that which is true and noble and upright. He baptizes with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And then another thing he does, of course, is to give certainty and joy. Don't you see that so plainly and clearly in those very apostles? Look at them after the crucifixion. Meeting together. And Peter, the bold, impulsive Peter, turning to the others and said, I'm going to fish. He's gone. We are disappointed. All oh, the end has come. I go a-fishing. The others said, we are coming with you. And out they went and fished all night and caught nothing. And then as the dawn was breaking, they happened to look at the shore and there they saw someone. And it was the Lord. Oh, how miserable, how wretched, how crestfallen, how powerless these men were. But then look at Peter on the day of Pentecost, standing up and defying the world, the man who denied his own Lord and Savior in order to save his skin, who had denied to the maid, the serving maid, and said, I don't know him. And he denied him with oaths and cursings. But here he is defying the whole world. What is this? Oh, it's the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He's got certainty, he's got knowledge, he's filled with joy, and he says, we cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and have heard. Christianity doesn't mean that a man is hoping that somehow or another, or sometime or another, his sins are going to be forgiven, and he may get into heaven at the end. No, no. The Christian, the man with the Holy Ghost in him, is a man who knows in whom he has believed. And he is persuaded that he will keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The baptism with the Holy Ghost makes a man know that his sins are forgiven. That he is a child of God. He says, the Spirit testifieth with my spirit that I am a child of God. 
the great trouble in the world today and the great trouble in the church is that there are so many people who don't know. They're uncertain. They're miserable. They know enough about Christianity to spoil the world for them, but they haven't got joy. They're unlike these disciples. They're unlike the first Christians. And it is because they've never realized the truth of the message of John the Baptist, that Christ baptizes with the Holy Ghost and with fire and does to us what he did to the apostles and to those first Christians in Samaria, to Cornelius and his household and to those people in Ephesus. He gives certainty. He gives joy. And he gives power. He comes into us as a power in our lives that amazes us. And we don't know ourselves. His power delivers us from the thraldom of sin. Its power, its dominion, and its pollution. He gives us power to testify unto this. As he gave it there to Peter on the day of Pentecost. He gives us power to endure all things, whatever they may be. I, says the Apostle Paul, can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. I know both how to be a base and how to abound. You can do nothing to me, says the Apostle Paul which will in any way disturb me. You can throw me into prison. You can starve me. It doesn't make any difference. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. That's the power of the Holy Ghost within me. That's this baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's the knowledge that he is right with Christ. He knows him, and nothing can ever separate him from him. He's secure. His everlasting destiny is safe. Men may destroy the body, but they can't touch the soul and the spirit. So he has power to endure all things. He can defy the world. He can look at hydrogen bombs, and he can say, let them come. It doesn't make any difference finally to me. It can ruin and blast the world to nothing. But my inheritance is safe with God and with Christ, and I am safe. He's conquered the world. He's greater than the power of hell simply because of the power of the Holy Spirit of God which has been shed abroad in his heart. I, the Christ, says John the Baptist, I indeed baptize you with water. Poor John the Baptist the greatest amongst the sons of women. And yet you remember that later on in his story, he was thrown into prison for six months, and poor John languishing in the prison, he began to doubt. And he sent his two disciples to Jesus Christ, and he said, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Poor John. He hadn't been baptized himself with the Holy Ghost. All he knew was that Christ was going to do it. He hadn't received it. And therefore he broke down under the imprisonment and the suffering and all the doubts came in. But that didn't happen to the Apostle Paul who had exactly the same treatment and were Why? Well, because he had been given this certainty, this joy, this assurance and this power which this baptism of the Holy Ghost gives. John pointed to him. He said, this isn't it. He's got it, and he is going to give it. He is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. He died that we might be forgiven. He is risen again and has sent forth the Holy Ghost. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, we can be delivered from the power of sin, the pollution of sin, and from everything set against us. We become in this world the children of God and the heirs of God and the joint heirs of Christ. And we can know that now 
we can rejoice in the knowledge. We can laugh in the face of the world at its most pleasant, at its most ugly. We can be sorry for the poor people in London this evening who are spending their money pound after pound trying to find a pleasure that they never get. We can be sorry for them. We pray for them. It's because of their ignorance. They don't know the blessings and the joys that come in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Should a third world war come and these horrible powers be unleashed, our world will not collapse. For we know that this world is already doomed. But our citizenship is already in heaven from whence also we expect the Savior. My dear friends, do you know anything about this baptism with the Holy Ghost and power? Are you still struggling to be moral? You needn't be a Christian to do that, I say. Have you something more? Are you aware of the power within you? It is what is offered by Christ. He doesn't merely die to save us from hell. He dies to deliver us from the dominion of sin and of Satan. And to present us falsely before the presence of God's glory. I indeed baptize you with water. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Are you beginning to experience the deliverance, the liberty, the glorious liberty of the children of God? Oh, I say, go to him, ask him for it, beseech him for it, cry out unto him for it. You are meant to be more than conqueror over everything that meets you, over everything that assails Ask him for it. For he has said himself, Ask, and he shall receive. Seek, and he shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Ask him then. Ask him in the name of Christ. And you shall receive and begin to experience the glorious deliverance. Amen.